let me um, start by telling you um, what I'm not going to do. <laughs> I'm going to um, not talk a lot about the uh, details of how um, the film got lost, rediscovered, etc., restored, which is a whole saga in itself. I'm really going to try and deal with um, how the film fits into wartime conditions in Britain in 1942 and 43, and how it forms part of, if you like, the matter of Britain. That might suggest I'm going to connect it with Arthurian legend. I'm not going to do that either tonight. I'm really going to focus on what the film meant to the people who made it and saw it um, in the mid, uh, in the early 1940s. Uh, it's, it's very strange for me, uh, possibly for some of you as well, to realize that we can now watch Blimp in a wonderful new restoration, which you're going to see later, um, so easily, because for years, uh, Blimp was just a kind of dream. Um, I remember in 1978, when we showed it as part of a big retrospective of Powell and Pressburger, we could only show a, a nitrate print which was missing many of the scenes that we now have. And really, until the mid-1980s, until 1985, to be precise, when the, the BFI restoration was first seen, the film was totally inaccessible. So it was something you could dream about, but you couldn't go and check it out. Uh, and that's why its rebirth from 1985 has been a great event. All the commentary and discussion of the film, which we have now, really stems from... Um, 1985, because that's really when the film was rediscovered. There is almost nothing written about it before that. So um, I'm just going to reach down for my glasses, if I can. I think they're right beside you, Oliver, just behind there. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, and that, that um, period of time the 40 years that separate us from 1985, nearly, uh, to now, of course, is a, an interval of time that will mean a lot to anybody who already knows the film. Uh, you will remember that one of the most daring features of the film is the great plunge into the past that Clive Candy undertakes when he dives into the swimming pool, and we undertake as we go back to discover him when young. So 40 years ago, that phrase echoes through the whole history of the film. But one of the critics who wrote about the film in 1943, uh, Caroline Lejeune, C.A. Lejeune, wrote in her review, what is it really about? And I think that question hangs in the air still to this day. What is this strange, vast film really about? I'm going to try and offer some suggestions this evening. I want to go past the contextual issues that have occupied a lot of time and um, publicity. Since we rediscovered the film, of course, we have also learned that Churchill, Winston Churchill, was um, violently opposed to the making of the film. Uh, and he hated it. He tried everything he could to obstruct it being made in the first place and then to obstruct it being exported. So it's a film that was made in, in the teeth of opposition from the very top, which is strange because, of course, it's a love letter to Britain, certainly on the part of its um, co-maker, Emmerich Pressburger. And Emmerich Pressburger had a, a very poignant memory. He remembered being at a screening that Churchill was present at, and uh, Churchill apparently walked out without saying a word after seeing it, and Emmerich was, I think, deeply hurt by that because for him it really was expressing all of his love and admiration for, to Britain. But Churchill didn't see it that way. But I'm not going to talk about that tonight, <laughs> um, except to tell you that. So it's the story of um, an Englishman and a German who meet in unlikely circumstances in Berlin in 1902, fighting a duel, who both fall in love with the same woman, and whose paths crisscross to a certain extent over the next 40 years. Yes, it's 40 years again. 40 years is the interval that comes through the film. You can see that, and these posters, these are the, the two of the original English posters, 
it's a hard film to sum up in a poster. You can see the struggle that the poster artists had. What is it about? And I think these posters really do express that puzzlement which the publicists must have felt back um, in 1943. You will know if you know the film, and you'll see it again, that it opens with um, a tapestry. This was actually was a real tapestry that was woven specially to form the backdrop of the credits. And um, I think we don't see it for very long. We don't get a chance to look at it closely. Discovering what's actually in the tapestry is something which you can only do actually in the digital era where you can freeze the frame, as I've done, blow it up and look at it closely. And you see some interesting things. I wonder how many people who've seen the film before have ever noticed the, the rugby post goalposts on the side. There are all sorts of curious things. The two planes up on the top, uh, top corner there. The hunting party in the middle, all dressed in red. There are many emblematic uh, vignettes, scenes, hints and suggestions dotted around this landscape. And we know that this was specially woven. There's a, a famous photograph of Powell and Pressburger uh, at the Royal College of Needlework, I believe it is, uh, inspecting progress on the weaving of the tapestry. So it, it was a real object, although no one seems to know where it is today. The figure of Blimp seen in the tapestry there is a sort of um, mock heroic figure. And in one sense, he clearly recalls, I think, the most famous mock heroic figure in the history of literature, culture, Don Quixote, uh, Cervantes' Don Quixote. This is the, the classic Dore illustration of, of um, Don Quixote. And I, I think you can sort of see something of that in the tapestry. Probably was an inspiration. It also, in a way, recalls a lesser-known figure, Lieutenant Kijay, who was the hero of a novel written by uh, Yuri Tinyanov, which was then filmed in Russia in 1934. And it's about a non-existent soldier who has to be invented because the Tsar thinks he exists. So they invent a whole life history for him, although he doesn't actually exist at all. It's best known because of Prokofiev's music. The wonderful suite of music that Prokofiev wrote has had a, a life of its own and actually has been used in some films since then. But this is another non-existent figure because Blimp, of course, is strictly a non-existent figure. His origins lay in the cartoon that um, David Lowe created uh, since 1934, all the way through the 1930s in um, uh, mainstream newspapers, mainly newspapers published by Beaverbrook, Colonel Blimp held forth, uh, usually sitting in the Turkish bath, uh, red-faced, wearing a towel around him, and holding forth to anybody who would listen, Gad, sir! And most of his um, preposterous ideas begin with this, this injunction. It was a satire. David Lowe was a New Zealander who had come to Britain uh, who was very much on the left, bitterly opposed to the conservative government and um, to the idiocy that he saw around him in official British circles. And Lowe, uh, uh, um, Blimp was his vehicle for um, mercilessly tearing into the establishment. But of course, he has no life story. He has no backstory in Lowe's creation. And interestingly, when Emmerich Pressburger had the idea of developing a script. Of course, he had to invent a life for um, Clive Candy. Clive Candy was the name uh, given to Blimp for the purposes of the script and the film. And in fact, this, the last script that we have of the film is headed The Life and Death of Sugar Candy, not Colonel Blimp. It's possible that this was a kind of cover story because of the opposition that was building up to a film about Blimp. Um, but it was being developed through 1942. And these are two documents which give you a sort of insight into what's going on. On the right is a, a report from the Times, February 1942. Um, it's a wonderful exchange. Beverly Baxter, 
from Wood Green, near where I live, says, isn't the essence of blimpery to keep the dog, top dog in his place? And you can see that there's a vigorous effort on the part of the war minister and Stafford Cripps to rebut the idea that there's any blimpery still around. So blimp was seen as a real um, bait to the government. So making a film about Colonel Blimp, of course, is a political challenge. And that's no doubt why Churchill was so opposed to it. This is an extract from a letter, a long letter, that um, Michael Powell wrote to Wendy Hiller. He wrote it at a time when um, they were hoping very much that Wendy Hiller would play the great triple part of the, the three women that Clive Candy falls in love with. And, and she would, I think, have played it. She was definitely very engaged with it, but she became pregnant and so couldn't play it. And so Deborah Carr was drafted in very much at the last moment, um, with only weeks to go before the shoot. You'll see at the bottom of that page, this comes from an edition of the script that I published uh, back in the 90s. This is a little letter from David Lowe saying, I've seen your plan for the film. I like it. Nothing but approval at this stage. The whole thing reads to me uh, like the makings of a very good movie. He also later said that he thought it was a very sentimental movie. And I think he regretted slightly that the Powell Pressburger, Roger Livesey version of Blimp is much softer than the satire that he aimed at politicians right through the 30s. It, it's not a sharply satirical film. It would have been a sharply satirical film if the Archer's original choice to play the part had actually played it, and that was Laurence Olivier. Um, they were deep in negotiations with Olivier um, during 1942, at just this time. And um, when they sent him the script, um, Uh, Olivier wrote back that he thought that um, he um, really was not sharp enough. He described it as a, a masterly idea, but he complained that Powell and Pressburger don't say what makes him a blimp. For Olivier, of course, this would have been a, a litany of essentially Tory attitudes to tradition, which lull Clive into feeling that everything's all right. So... The Olivier letter is really quite an important document. It, it's a critique of the script of the film before the film is made, again pointing to its lack of um, critique of the national malaise of we'll muddle through. And interestingly, um, Olivier talks about the Elizabethans, Drake especially, and of course he talks about Nelson. Uh, why does he talk about Nelson? Because he's just played Nelson opposite uh, Vivian Lee in um, the film that's known as Lady Hamilton or That Hamilton Woman. So Nelson was very much on his mind. And what he's doing is really making a contrast between the, the more kind of no-nonsense attitude of Nelson, who cuts through um, red tape and does what he feels is necessary, and the muddle that he sees around him uh, at the, in this early stage of the war. So where does the film actually spring from? Where does the concept, Powell and Pressburger's concept, spring from? Well, it comes from a scene in their previous film, One of Our Aircraft is Missing. Um, in that film, the crew of uh, an English bomber is shot down. They bail out over the Netherlands. And the oldest member of the crew, seen there on the left, um, in a scene which is not in the finished film, said, effectively, you don't know what I was like when I was as young as you were. The young can never understand that the old were once young like them. That thought stayed with especially Emmerich Pressburger, and that's really where the Archer's version of Colonel Blimp comes from. What would it be like if we could see the youth of someone who has become visibly a blimp in his older age? It's a very interesting film. Um, one of our aircraft is missing, and it deserves to be better known. So Hiller couldn't play the part. Uh, the man who made the film happen was Arthur Rank. And again, this is a, this is a very improbable conjunction. Um, Arthur Rank was... Uh, 
the um, inheritor of a great flour milling dynasty. He was an industrialist on a, on a big scale. He was a Methodist. Uh, he was a teetotaler. He was really everything that you would think of as being you know, establishment. And yet there was a radical side to rank. And he became more or less accidentally the savior of the British film industry in the late 1930s and certainly during the war itself. He ended up owning the major distributor, the major means of production, running the two main studios, um, and owning most of the cinemas that would show Blimp and the other films made during World War II. And this is a, a Time magazine cover from 1946 when he was recognized as um, the man with the gong, because the gong had become the, the logo at the front of rank organization films. But I put those two images alongside Arthur Rank just to remind us of the sheer scale of the production. To make a film like this with no cooperation from the war ministry, no cooperation from government, no cooperation from the Ministry of Information, uh, which had backed 49th Parallel, was really quite a feat. How did they do this? People often asked Michael Powell how they did it, and you may know the line where he says, well, how did we get all the vehicles and things? We stole them. So you have to imagine an extremely piratical approach to assembling this production. Basically, they had to piece it together. They knew they had the financial backing, the moral backing of Arthur Rank, who was absolutely behind it, um, but they had to make it uh, by whatever means they had available. The powers that be, the ministries, um, continued to take a close interest in the progress of the film. Even though they tried to stop it, um, Churchill is, is on record as saying to his Minister of Information, uh, pray propose to me the measures necessary to suppress this film. And Brendan Bracken said to him, I'm sorry, sir, we can't. It's a democracy. And this is in 1942, shading into 1943. The Ministry of Information couldn't actually stop the film being made. But they could send the civil servants to see what the result was. And this is Lowe's comment, uh, Whitehall's evening out. Every government department sent delegations to view the film and give their impressions. Um, they couldn't stop it being shown. And so it was widely shown. And it's thought that it was probably the most successful film of 1943 in British cinemas. Now, there are no box office figures from this period. We can't absolutely prove that. We know other films were popular. Random Harvest was hugely popular. There were other British-made films, as well as Hollywood films, that were big in the cinemas. But we do have one very interesting piece of evidence, and that's the mass observation um, study that was done in uh, November 1943. Now, you can read about these in, in Jeffrey Richards and Dorothy Sheridan's wonderful book about mass observation at the movies, but I've just picked out a few quotes here. The main fact is that of all the films that the observers, who were part of the mass observation pool, had seen during 1943, Blimp came highest among women, it was mentioned by 28 women, and second highest among men. So this is incredibly popular across all classes and all ages. And these are just some examples. Um, this is a, a WAF officer, age 33. I liked the film because its propaganda was subtle and good. The Edwardian scenes, particularly the duel, were delightful. A pleasant touch of humor, and because of the splendid character acting of Livesey and Walbrook. Um, you can see other examples here. Um, this is a, a timber merchant, age 44, in Leeds. Um, Blimp got me interested and captivated me, and what a fine actor played Blimp. Several people say, I loved it, but I can't explain why. And so already you get something of that puzzlement, which you find in Caroline Lejeune's comment on the film. And there she is. This is Caroline Lejeune, one of the two 
uh, great lady women critics who dominated the Sunday papers in the 1940s. Uh, Dillis Powell wrote in The Times, Caroline Lejeune wrote in The Observer, and most people who are interested in film would read both of them or see what they had to say about the new films. And this was her comment um, about Blimp. What is it really about? Something which emerged uh, a little after the film was released and which continues to be quoted a great deal. I think it's interesting, maybe significant. Two um, Scots people, E.W. and M.W. Robson, published a pamphlet called The Shame and Disgrace of Colonel Blimp. Nobody seems to know too much about them. It's not even quite clear whether they were married or whether they were brother and sister or what. One was female, we know that much, uh, from other material that they published. They really took against Blimp in a big way. <laughs> they published a complete pamphlet um, proving that it's really a kind of um, anti-British propaganda, that it promotes um, the German, Theo Kretschmar-Schuldorf, uh, who is a noble, handsome, awe-inspiring, able and wise German, against the foolish, walrus-whiskered Englishman. And for them, this was anti-British, anti-English. They went on to publish several other pamphlets attacking the film. And because there are copies of these pamphlets in almost every library in the land, you'd be amazed, people have continued to find it and have assumed that this represents really a big head of opposition to the film in wartime. I think that's totally untrue. I think these were two eccentrics who really had a kind of bee in their bonnet about the film, but I think all the evidence we have from mass observation and from the critics is that it was a, a deeply loved and admired film. Churchill's opposition uh, prevented the film from being seen in America until 1945, and that, I think, is one of the major tragedies, in a way, that um, the film was not exported quickly. Churchill was able to block giving it an export license. And so by the time it arrived in America, the war was over, and interest in wartime subjects was beginning to evaporate very rapidly. But you can see again in two of the American posters here the problem that the distributors, it was distributed through UA, United Artists, you can see the problem they had in selling it. What is the film about? So the publicists come up with um, the year's most unusual motion picture, not a very good selling line, a lusty lifetime of love and adventure in lavish Technicolor. Hmm. Uh, Technicolor was not so uncommon in America as it had been in Britain, so that's not a selling point. Or um, the life and death of Colonel Blimp. There was a beautiful woman involved. <laughs> yeah, they're trying very hard. I think these posters are quite significant. You can see the difficulty of selling the film, especially in a, a post-war America. The length was also against it. It's a very long film. It's um, 165 minutes was its original length. And that was long for the period. Most films were considerably shorter. So very soon, moves were made to shorten it. And in shortening it, the very elaborate temporal structure of the film, the flashback, the jumping around in time, was also lost. And so when I first saw the film in uh, the 1970s, it was about two hours long, and it was straightened out in chronology. It began in 1902 and simply moved forward to 1942. So the film was only a, a torso of what it had been. When it re-emerged in 1985, um, I think it re-emerged into a, a different world, a world that was ready for restorations and revivals and rediscoveries. Kevin Brownlow had restored Abel Gance's Napoleon in 1980. And this lost film from the 1920s was a huge success. It was shown at festivals with live music. It became one of the great hits of the 1980s. And I think by the time Blimp arrived in 85, there was an audience that was primed to rediscover films that they had never seen and perhaps never even heard of. Now, what I'm going to do is offer you two, I think, lesser-known um, 
sources for the film, which I think are worth thinking about when we think about what led Powell and Pressburger to shape their, um, their version of the, of the kernel. One of them is a book which I think is now almost totally forgotten by Alice Dewar Miller, The White Cliffs. It's a novel in verse form. Um, that's the beginning of it. Those are the first three stanzas. This was unbelievably popular in 1940. It sold a million copies. That's a lot of copies at that time. It's a, it's a love letter to England by an American author, a very interesting American author indeed, um, who had been a, a prominent campaigner for women's suffrage. Uh, she wrote a, a very famous pamphlet called uh, Our Women People back in the teens. So she had had a long career as quite a provocative writer. But she knew England, and she wrote this love letter to England. And um, Emmerich was certainly very, very impressed by it, Emmerich Pressburger. These are the final lines of the poem. I am American bred. I have seen much to hate here, much to forgive. But in a world in which England is finished and dead, I do not wish to live. That made a, a, a big impression on Emmerich Pressburger, and he got the rights. The, he had an option at one point to adapt it as a film. It was eventually made as a film in Hollywood in 1944 with Irene Dunn. But he recommended that, those final lines to his friend, fellow Hungarian, George Mikesh. This is another great bestseller of the war period, How to Be an Alien, a handbook for beginners. And um, that's uh, George Mikesh's own uh, description of his, his, uh, his book. Um, I think it tells us quite a lot about the attitude of these two Anglophile Hungarians, Emmerich Pressburger and George Mikesh, who had made England their home, but they looked slightly obliquely at the English and their strange habits. And George Mikesh, in fact, would dedicate his a later book to Emmerich Pressburger, uh, how to be decadent. He said, to my old, dear old friend, Emmerich Pressburger, who was not decadent, but there is still time. Um, so this gives us a sidelight on both an ironic, I suppose, and um, a sentimental view of what England meant to foreigners in 1940. The other um, source I'm going to show you is a short film. Um, this is uh, a film which um, Michael Powell made off his own bat. We know very little about the circumstances in which it was made uh, in 1940. It's based on a letter which was written by a, a pilot to be, um, to be sent to his mother if he didn't return from a mission. He didn't return. The letter reached his mother. And through his commanding officer, the idea emerged that maybe the letter should be made known to a wider number of people as an inspirational um, document. And it was eventually printed in the Times and published as a small pamphlet. Again, it's one of the great popular successes of the early war period. Michael made a film with John Gielgud reading the letter. And I think the film is so personal. It tells you a great deal about the the mental universe and the physical universe that Michael Powell was living in in the early war period. So I suggest you look closely at the, the decor, at the titles of the books uh, of this. This is the, the bulk of the film I'm going to show you, I hope, preferably with the lights down, if we can. Among the personal belongings of an Air Force pilot in a bomber squadron who was recently reported missing, believed killed, was a letter to his mother to be sent to her if he were killed. His station commander sent the letter to the young officer's mother, asking whether it might be published anonymously. He wrote that the letter was perhaps the most amazing one he had ever read, simple and direct in its wording, but splendid and uplifting in its outlook. He felt that the letter might bring comfort to other mothers and that everyone in our country would feel proud to read of the sentiments which support an average airman in the execution of his present arduous duties. He received the mother's permission.
The letter was published in the Times, and it is presented in its present form in the hope that it may become known to the greatest possible number of this young officer's countrymen at home and abroad. Dearest Mother, although I feel no premonition at all, events are moving rapidly, and I have instructed that this letter be forwarded to you should I fail to return from one of the raids we shall be shortly called upon to undertake. You must hope on for a month. At the end of that time, you must accept the fact that I have handed my task over to the extremely capable hands of my comrades of the Royal Air Force, as so many other splendid fellows have already done. Though it will be difficult for you, you will disappoint me if you do not at least try to accept the facts dispassionately, for I shall have done my duty to the utmost of my ability. No man can do more, and no one calling himself a man could do less. I have always admired your amazing courage in face of continual setbacks, in the way you have given me as good an education and background as anyone in the country, and always kept up appearances without ever losing faith in the future. My death would not mean that your struggle has been in vain. Far from it. It means that your sacrifice is as great as mine. Those who serve England must expect nothing from her. We debase ourselves if we regard our country as merely a place in which to eat and sleep. History resounds with illustrious names who have given all, yet their sacrifice has resulted in the British Empire, where there is a measure of peace, justice and freedom for all, and where a higher standard of civilization has evolved and is still evolving than anywhere else. Today we are faced with the greatest organized challenge to Christianity and civilization that the world has ever seen. And I count myself lucky and honored to be the right age and fully trained to throw my full weight into the scale. For this, I have to thank you. You must not grieve for me, for if you really believe in religion and all that it entails, that would be hypocrisy. I have no fear of death, only a queer relation. And I know that many familiar faces await me in the mess. I would have it no other way. The universe is so vast, so ageless, that the life of one man can only be justified by the measure of his sacrifice. We are sent to this world to acquire a personality and a character to take with us that can never be taken from us. I firmly and absolutely believe that evil things are sent into the world to try us. They are sent deliberately by our creator to test our mettle, because he knows what is good for us. I count myself fortunate in that I've seen the whole country and no men of every calling. But with the final test of war, I consider my character fully developed. Thus, at my early age, my earthly mission is already fulfilled. And I am prepared to die with just one regret, and one only, that I could not devote myself to making your declining years more happy by being with you. But you will live in peace and freedom, and I shall have directly contributed to that. So here again, my life will not have been in vain. I think that takes us really to um, the heart of a certain moment in wartime ideology. Um, it's one of the sources that I think Powell, in particular, I've said that the White Cliffs was an important source for Emmerich, Pressburger, but I think for Powell, something like that was an important um, uh, inspiration. Now, of course, it's most obviously an inspiration for a matter of life and death. And uh, those of you who know that film will realize that um, that feeds directly into the, the whole um, two worlds um, uh, structure of a matter of life and death. But let's just replace um, Blimp in its wartime context. We saw here, in my previous lecture, 49th Parallel, the film that brought Powell and Pressburger together in wartime service, as it were. And that is really about a Canada which is still an outpost of the British Empire, um, which offers a, a challenge to Nazi ideology. And then we move to one of our aircraft is missing. One of our aircraft is missing shows British audiences what might happen if Britain were invaded 
through the dramatic device of uh, British aircrew finding themselves being hidden by the Dutch underground as they make their way out of the Netherlands. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of making uh, the, the potential of uh, invasion and occupation a reality for a British audience. A very interesting film. It's, there aren't many films that did that. Cavalcanti's film went the day well, tried to show uh, a British audience what it might be like if, if there was, in fact, a, uh, a fifth column at work in Britain of German, German uh, troops. Um, and, of course, after the war, Kevin Brownlow's great film, um, It Happened Here, tried to imagine what an occupied Britain would have been like. The centerpiece of this cycle of films uh, that Powell and Pressburger were making is, of course, Blimp. And I think it's, it's really interesting that Blimp, the centerpiece of Blimp, and I'm not going to say too much about it for those who haven't seen the film before, uh, is um, the great scene where Theo, Kretschmar Schuldorf, Clive's old friend, comes to Britain as a refugee, and amongst other things, he points out that Britain was in fact very slow to understand the true gravity of the menace posed by the Nazi regime. This is an extraordinary but very important message to deliver to a British audience in 1943. You didn't realise what was going on. You didn't act fast enough. And perhaps it's important that the film has got so much surrounding that to make that message palatable in the climate of 1943. After Blimp, um, the archers clearly felt that they had more to say about, more to explore in England's history. And in A Canterbury Tale, they set out to penetrate the deep England of Kent and Canterbury, which of course was Michael Powell's um, home uh, as a child. In this modern pilgrimage, three outsiders discover connections with a rural England and with its initially forbidding guardian, the local squire, Culpepper, played by Eric Portman. Uh, a really sinister, initially sinister, quite um, mysterious figure. But interestingly, he, his message at wartime is the importance of understanding the history of England. All that Culpepper wants to do is to tell the newly arrived people who've come to Kent something about the history of the ground that they're marching on, living on. And he's also a progressive figure, and this is something I only discovered many years after first encountering the film. This is a film which was also restored uh, in modern times to its, the version that we now have, only in 1978. If you look very closely at the desk, at Culpepper's desk in his study, if you freeze frame <laughs> and magnify it, you will discover there's a little pile of books on his desk. And one of these books, I discovered, is Soil and Sense, which was a really important wartime book about, essentially, ecology and the need to get back to understanding uh, the importance of farming and cultivation without resort to artificial pesticides. It's one of the founding documents of the ecological movement, still to this day. So, and I'm pretty sure that Michael put that on the desk. So I think that for Powell and Pressburger, this figure of Culpepper is a hinge between the traditional past and progressive uh, values which will be needed in the future. And of course, in A Matter of Life and Death, the film which they scripted during the war but only got to make after the war was over, um, Peter Carter, the pilot, the central figure, is a carefully balanced embodiment of 1945. As he says in this opening scene, he's conservative by nature, but labor by experience. Well, the election of 1945 had just happened two months before the film started shooting. So you can see why he's so carefully balanced. But interestingly, in the heavenly trial, where Peter's life on Earth is in the balance uh, in the middle of the film. Um, that was taking place at a time, and this arena, which um, is peopled by a vast collection, a vast audience of uh, service people from all 
backgrounds, all nationalities, all ethnicities. To us, I think it, it speaks of the United Nations. Um, we can't help but think that this kind of great gathering of all nations and races was in fact coming into being in the late 1940s. And it was. The founding meetings of the United Nations were happening in America in 1945 and 46, at the time when this film was being seen across the world. And British embassies were sending back reports to the government about the climate of hostility to Britain's imperialism. So one of the reasons why the film is so careful in unpicking Britain's imperial record is because it's actually made with an awareness of the uh, unpopularity of Britain's empire at this time. Britain and America may be pledged to marriage in the film's central romance, but not without misgivings. And before inviting the jury to give their verdict, the heavenly judge quotes Walter Scott's poem, Love. In peace, love tunes the shepherd's reed. In war, he mounts the shepherd's steed. In halls, in gay attire is seen. In hamlets, dances on the green. Love rules the court, the camp, the grove, and men below and saints above. For love is heaven, and heaven is love. But will love be sufficient to overcome the strains that lie ahead in the post-war world. Uh, we know that, as I say, that there were great strains being placed on Britain in the post-war world. And it's interesting that as we look at the film now, it takes us right back to that anxiety and uncertainty that was colouring so much British um, apprehension about what the post-war world had in store. This is the report of the United Nations opening more or less contemporary with the making of the film. So where does Blimp stand? Where does the life and death of Colonel Blimp stand in this evolving debate about Britain's destiny? Perhaps the most striking feature of the film, despite its enormous length, is the absences that make up Clive Candy's life history. Of course his life is full of missing bits because it's not a real life. It's a cartoon life that's been assembled around key moments. Like uh, a caricatured Don Quixote, he gallops into battle to defend the honor of a lady that he hardly knows in Berlin in 1902. He ends up fighting a duel, again in a chivalric um, impulse uh, in defense of her honor, immediately after the Boer War, when again Britain's reputation has taken a bit of a knock. Having lost her to his German rival, he finds her substitute in a nurse that he glimpses on the Western Front during his service in World War I. And something, again, which I think we should pay a little attention to, we see the married life that Clive uh, enjoys with his substitute figure uh, after the war. We see it in the form of a series of photos photo album pages, which are turned over very rapidly. They have a, an imperial post-World War I experience, traveling around the empire, various postings to different countries and embassies. Interestingly, Michael Powell based this on the real experiences of his military advisor, Lieutenant General Brownrigg. And I just got this morning Lieutenant General Brownrigg's memoirs, so I haven't had time to read yet. I've been wanting to read these for some time because uh, Powell said that he actually used the real general's um, photo album for the film. I don't think there's any way of verifying that, but certainly the inspiration came from there. So this is a typical interwar career for a retired army officer. That's uh, Lieutenant General Brownrigg, who served as the, um, the military advisor on the film. Apparently, um, very happy to do so. He had been involved with the Home Guard himself, so he, he knew what he was talking about, and he would have warmed to the film's theme of Clive Candy finding a vocation in helping to organize the, um, the, the Home Guard. And then, of course, the loss of Clive's wife is recorded as we turn a page in the film, and she's gone. She's died, and so Clive's life goes back to being empty. But there's something else which is, I think, extraordinarily interesting, which we only discovered when the film was restored. 
uh, the version that we had before 1985 had many sequences missing. And one that was missing was the moment where Clive comes back from Berlin and goes to the theater. He, again, is looking for some distraction. So he goes with um, uh, the sister of the woman that he has lost in Berlin, Edith's sister. And he sees a, a, a play called Ulysses. It's a real play. It's by Stephen Phillips. He was a very popular dramatist of the late Victorian and Edwardian period. And um, it was a, a huge success in London in 1902. So the research that underpins Clive's career is absolutely accurate and precise. They found the play that Clive would have gone to see because it was the most popular play in London at the time. And of course, the theme of it, of Ulysses, on his way back after the Trojan War, again echoes uh, exactly what um, Clive is experiencing as he searches for home, a home, and his destiny. We might be reminded of another pensioned off knight, the, the White Knight, in uh, Lewis Carroll's um, uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass. Again, we're back to that sort of slightly um, mournful figure of a, a knight for whom there is no use any longer. Stephen Phillips' play, the theme of it was identified in a review as a wanderer's return, the yearning of the seafarer for his home and all that home means, for the sight of wife and child and friends, and the kind land that gave him birth. Well, that sums up exactly what Clive is looking for. He's a warrior, a wanderer in search of home. And, of course, another part of the research was the duel, the great duel in Berlin, which forms an important part of, of uh, Clive's visit to, 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 um, to Berlin, came from a dueling manual that Emmerich Pressburger found in the British Museum. So, again, that's based on documentary evidence. So, what I've tried to put in front of you in a very short space of time is some of the elements that I think are crucial to understanding how Powell and Pressburger created Blimp. They started with a cartoon figure, um, a man who only exists when holding forth with blimpish sentiments in the, um, in the Turkish bath. They've given him a life history, an equivalent to um, Tinyanov's Lieutenant Kije, an imagined life just with the crucial moments where he um, acts with chivalric intent, but often rather foolishly. Um, it's an anti-heroic, a mock-heroic life. And I think as we come back to the tapestry, we can see how this tapestry really sums up that whole ethos and spirit of the film. It's not trying to turn Blimp into something that he's not. It's not trying to make him a, a truly heroic figure. He's a sad, a rather abject figure. But at the same time, he represents something of value. And what Michael Powell said in his letter to Wendy Hiller, their interpretation of a Blimp was that Blimps um, were not born but made by experience. And at the same time, precisely what makes them Blimps is also what might turn out to be of most value to others in them. So I think the particular Powell Pressburger spin on being a Blimp is that the qualities of uh, constancy, maybe even obtuseness, that make up a blimp can also be valuable at times of stress and strain. It's not David Lowe's blimp, it's Powell and Pressburger's blimp, but it certainly struck a chord with the audiences of 1943, as we know from those, those uh, writings. And of course, it put the, the archers, the company that Powell and Pressburger had created, right at the center of British filmmaking. This was considered one of the great achievements of British cinema in 1943. It was a very early example of the use of Technicolor, one of the great Technicolor films of the 1940s, I think, and a formidable logistical achievement to make this with absolutely no official um, support. But they did. We know that Emmerich Pressburger felt deeply um, attached to the film, when it was restored in 1985, Emmerich, I think, was, was so happy 
that the film into which he'd poured all his feelings about Britain was visible once again. He just beamed with delight when we showed it uh, in, in, in 1985. And you can see that video in some places of him appearing at the National Film Theatre. And he's almost speechless because it's his dream that the film has come back. Um, one of the admirers of the film, of course, at that time, who's been a great supporter and has helped to steer through the funding of the new restoration, was Martin Scorsese. And you can see a very young Martin Scorsese in that interview uh, in 1985, visibly touched to be in the presence of his two great heroes, Powell and Pressburger. And actually, there's a Turkish bath scene in Scorsese's new film, if you've seen The Irishman, which does slightly recall Blimp. I'm sure that's his... That's definitely his reference back to one of his favorite films. Um, it became customary after 85 to compare Life and Death of Colonel Blimp to Citizen Kane. Andrew Saras, the great American critic, and his wife, uh, Molly Haskell, have often talked about the relationship between Citizen Kane, made in 1941, and Blimp, made in 43. There is a relationship, obviously, Every filmmaker in the world was influenced by Citizen Kane. It had a huge impact on the thinking of filmmakers about the structure of films. So I'm sure that Powell and Pressburger took it on board, although they never talked about it explicitly. But, you know, I think in many ways um, we should see it as something indigenous, something that springs from the soil of English culture and especially of that culture that... Pressburger represented the culture of those who have come to England and discovered England, like Pressburger and Mikesh, and see England from a slightly different perspective than the English see it from. To me, it seems uh, one of their most amazing films, and I think it makes a unique contribution to this idea of the matter of Britain, which traditionally is located back in the Arthurian legends that were carried forward. But actually, what Powell and Pressburger did was to write a new chapter in the matter of Britain. I hope you're going to enjoy the film. Uh, if you're seeing it for the first time, um, how lucky you are. If you're seeing it again, you're also lucky because you're seeing it on a big screen, uh, which is not so common these days, in uh, the, the very latest restoration, um, Godfathered, if I may say so, by Martin Scorsese and Thomas Schoonmaker. Thank you.